0: nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let's open the word of truth this morning to John chapter 4, starting in verse 20. John chapter 4, verse 20. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord and and filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared for the study of God's Word, that we might understand and comprehend the spiritual truth that is contained herein. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, confession which is between the believer and the Lord in the privacy of their soul, a function of our royal priesthood to make sure we're ready for the study of God's Word. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have to look at your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It illuminates every area of our lives, every area of decision-making, every, every area of activity, every area of thought. And so as we take our thought, our, our thoughts, our lives, our activities, our hopes, our desires, and we bring them to the light of your word, we pray that we would have the objectivity, the humility, the teachability under the filling of the Holy Spirit to see our lives as they are in comparison with what you would have us to do in your in your work. We pray that you would guide and direct us now in this service in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 4 is the remarkable and dramatic episode of Jesus Christ's conversation with this un- unnamed woman at the well in Samaria. It's a unique incident a unique event, and John takes quite a bit of time to, to uh, describe everything that goes on here and to give us all of the details. It is, I think, one of the most dramatic episodes in all of the Scripture, and John, having lived many years in Greece by this time, in Ephesus, and in uh, understanding the Greek mind, seems to construct this according to the, the outline of a Greek drama. You have the main principal characters... Jesus and the woman and then the disciples and eventually the whole uh, citizenry of of Sychar serve as a Greek chorus in the background. So there is John self-consciously, I think, writes this in such a way as to bring out the drama of this incident as Jesus communicates the gospel to this woman by the side of of Jacob's well on the side of Mount Gerizim in Samaria. We have looked at this in the past in order to extrapolate some principles related to evangelism, so let's review that to make sure we are, uh, we are bringing our thinking back to the same place. As Jesus sits down with her, he asks her the question to give him something to drink. What Jesus is doing is establishing the common ground not on the basis of, of autonomous ideas such as history or what is truth or uh, some sort of ideology uh, trying to then bring to that subject the analysis of Scripture in terms of its veracity and authority. But he's establishing the common ground in terms of their creaturehood. And he will establish his own authority by virtue of his own words. And remember, we studied that principle initially in his conversation with Nicodemus, that it is the Word of God that has self-authenticating authority. You do not have to establish the authority of Scripture by appealing to some independent or neutral ground some area of common ground like his history or rationalism or empiricism that the word of God itself contains its own authority and remember the, the story that Jesus tells about Lazarus and the rich man Lazarus was the beggar outside the rich man's gate Lazarus is a believer and when he dies he goes to Abraham's bosom on the other hand the rich man was an unbeliever the rich man when he died went to torments and in, while he is in torments He pleads with Abraham to let Lazarus return from the grave and go and tell his brothers what would happen to them when they died if they did not become a believer. And what does Abraham say? He said, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe the empirical data from Lazarus. And the point that we learn from that is that the Bible contains its own authority because man is not, no human being is a core an atheist. According to Romans 1, 18 through 20, every human being knows God exists and they are, if they're in negative volition, suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. And sometimes the unbeliever, in the midst, as we prepare to communicate the gospel to them in an evangelistic situation, has been suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They're in a certain level of denial about spiritual reality and ultimate things simply because the truth of that is a little too convicting or hard to deal with. Perhaps there's ultimate judgment or condemnation. But I don't know how to handle that, so I'm just not going to think about it. And that's how many people go through life just anesthetized to spiritual reality and living at some level of denial. So Jesus has to get this woman's attention because that's exactly where she is. And he keeps asking questions and giving her strong hints about this water that he has to offer her. That if she would drink of the water that he has for her, she would never again thirst. But she continues to think of water only in a superficial physical way and she never quite gets the point never quite gets the point of what he is saying finally he has to as it were reach out and tap her or grab her by the shoulder and shake her a little bit to get her attention so he says go and get your husband well she doesn't want to talk about that she's been married five times and is currently living with the man Uh, currently living with a man she is not married to. So Jesus makes that point, and he's not doing this to embarrass her. He's not doing this to put her on the spot. He's doing this simply to get her attention for a number of different things. First of all, to show that he has omniscience, that he knows all about her and knows her better than she knows herself. Secondly, he's pointing out her moral need. She is fully aware that she is uh, morally bankrupt, But she is, like most unbelievers, anesthetized to that and in denial and not wanting to deal with that whatsoever. By bringing that to her attention in verse 18, she realizes that he is more than simply a traveler who has stopped by this well. And she says to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know, the term prophet had become a technical term back in Deuteronomy I believe it's in Deuteronomy 18:18, 18, 18, where Moses prophesied that there would be a prophet like him that would come. And that was interpreted by the rabbis to refer to the Messiah. And so it's possible. We can't be dogmatic here. I think it is very possible, perhaps likely, that it is at this point that she begins to realize who Jesus is. And this is somewhere at this moment in the conversation is when she uh, becomes a believer. It's hard to tell. Now, just as a side note here, whenever we have these conversations of Jesus with Nicodemus, conversation with the woman at the well, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, if you were to stand up and read those passages out loud, they would take a minute, a minute and a half to read. Obviously, the Holy Spirit has not told us everything that was said at those times. He has uh, abridged the conversation for us so we get the truth of what happened without any error, and we get it summarized in a perfect, abridged form. And so there are moves that are taking place here the Holy Spirit wants us to be aware of in the conversation. And when she says that she perceives to Jesus as a prophet, it's possible that somewhere in here she has already, at about this time, trusted Christ. The reason I say that, or an evidence that that might be, might be the case, is in verse 21. Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me. And then he starts a discourse on worship. And in that discourse, he says that worship must be on the basis, uh, be by means of the Spirit and truth. Well, what he says about worship might not be fully understandable to an unbeliever. Furthermore, his emphasis on saying, believe me, might not be what he would say to an unbeliever. He would be addressing her now as a believer. I'm just saying that's possible. It's also possible that she's just at that edge as you talk to somebody and communicating the gospel. They're seriously considering the claims of Christ that you've presented before them, and they're just on the edge of making uh, a decision to trust Christ, but they have some questions. Questions perhaps have plagued them or bothered them or they've wondered about for a long time. And so suddenly now in the midst of this, uh, witnessing opportunity that you have, they start asking you, well, okay, granted the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, who He claims to be, died on the cross for my sins, um, how do you deal with, uh, why do so many people suffer? Why is there so much unjust suffering in the world? Or they might say, well, okay, granted that Jesus is who He claims to be, uh, does that mean, what, how does that impact my view of origins or creation or evolution? Or, or what about... Uh, uh, how much do I believe about the Old Testament? You know, Suddenly they start asking questions, not so much because they're challenging you, but because they're in, in a point now in their understanding of the gospel where they have questions and they need to understand what else is involved in this. How do I put all this together? What about the heathen? How, I understand the gospel because you've just told me, but if that's really the only way to hell, what about people who never heard? And they're asking honest, legitimate questions. Now, it's only by experience, prayer, realizing that the Holy Spirit's the sovereign executive of evangelism that you, in the midst of this situation, know whether the person is challenging you, trying to throw out a red herring because they're trying to, okay, you've said that, you've just told me that I'm going to be condemned to eternity in the lake of fire, and frankly, I don't want to talk about it, so let's talk about the heathen. Maybe they're just trying to distract you. We all know and have experienced different situations like this in in witnessing. Now, I think that what's going on here is the case that the woman has heard, she's a Samaritan, and remember what that means, that she is of a hybrid race that's partly Jewish and partly Gentile, and they're looked down upon by the Jews, and the Jews don't want to have anything to do with them. They view them as sort of a, a bastard race of people and Jews are not supposed to have anything to do with Samaritans, and the few dealings that are allowed are strictly regulated by Pharisaic tradition. For one thing is, you can buy food from a Samaritan, but you can't eat after them or drink after them, because that would render you spiritually unclean. And so she's heard all her life about this conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And one of the major issues is this concept of worship, and we have to go back historically to understand the background for this. Back in the Old Testament, in the history of Israel, we begin with what's called the United Kingdom. Three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king in the, of Israel. But Rehoboam, instead of following his father's older, wiser counselors, followed the young men on the staff and and they counseled him to increase the tax burden on the people. Well, remember Solomon was the one who built the temple and and gilded everything with with a a tremendous uh, amount of gold and uh, precious jewels and levied quite a tax burden on the people in order to, to build the temple. So, when Rehoboam wanted to increase that taxation, it was just too much. So, Jeroboam, who was a rabble rouser in the north, led the northern ten tribes in a tax revolt. See, tax revolts aren't new. Led them in a tax revolt against Rehoboam and established the ten-nation northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the problem is that Israel, as a nation, is a theocracy. God is ultimately the king. And the laws, the constitution of the nation, was laid down what we call the Mosaic Law. That's basically the constitution of the land. And the Mosaic Law said that the center of worship would be at the temple in Jerusalem, one central sanctuary, and everybody must go to Jerusalem in order, at least, um, I think, three times a year for a pilgrimage festival at, the, at uh, Pentecost, at Passover, and then, I, I believe, at the Day of Atonement were the three pilgrimage festivals. And they would have to go there. Well, if you're going to establish the northern kingdom as a separate kingdom, you don't want your people making this trek down to Jerusalem three times a year, the capital of your rival king. So what Jeroboam did, one of the first examples, at least the first example in the Bible, is he engages in some historical revisionism and he's going to rewrite the history of Israel and in the process he's going to take out his razor blade and recreate scripture. So the Ten Nation Northern uh, Confederation is founded on heresy, rewriting the Bible and creating a false uh, history of the origins of the nation, and in rewriting the the Bible, they took everything out except the Pentateuch. The Samaritans only followed the Pentateuch, and they changed so that the central sanctuary was no longer down in the south in Jerusalem, but was to be built on Mount Gerizim. And where is Jesus sitting when he is talking with the woman at the well? He is on. The edge of Mount Gerizim. Where else would be more likely for him to discuss and to teach on the whole issue of worship than at the location of controversy? So he is right at, there at Gerizim, and the woman raises the question about true worship. She says, I perceive that you are a prophet. I have a question. If you're going to claim all of this about yourself as the Messiah and indicate that you can offer me eternal life and and water that I will never thirst again, that will satisfy all my spiritual needs, let me clear up a few things. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you people say, that is you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So herein we have our conflict. Jesus says to her, Woman, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. The point is that up to this time historically, the issue has been Jerusalem as a central sanctuary in the temple, but it will not be long prophetically before that is no longer valid. So this really isn't an important question to be asking right now. He says in verse 22, you worship that which you do not know, and we worship that, that we being Jews worship that which we know for principle. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus knows that in 70 AD, in approximately 40 years, the temple in Jerusalem would be wiped out by the Romans and the army of Titus. But he also knows that in a few minutes, there's going to be a major, a true. Major spiritual revival in the village of Sychar, and so he's going to lay out a few things here relative to spiritual truth and to worship in order to make sure that the the people will understand that the physical worship site is no longer an issue with the because of the first advent. He says. You worship that which you do not know. The reason they worship that which they do not know is because they have had the Old Testament abridged for them historically and they don't have, all they have is the first five books of the Old Testament and they have been mutilated. It's what I call cut-and-paste theology. This is the same thing you run into with every cult. You run into it with modern liberal Protestant theology. You run into it with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and just about every other odd group that wants to either add something to the Scripture or delete from the Scripture. And this has been the historical conflict. In the second century A.D., you had a man come along by the name of Marcion. Now, Marcion had an anti-Semitic streak that was a mile wide down his back. And he believed that anything that that was written by a Jew or that promoted a positive view of Israel couldn't really be inspired by God. So he said the New Testament canon consisted of about 11 books. Most of Paul, not all of Paul, and Luke. And that was it. Now that was the first time anybody in human history started coming up with an idea that there would be a New Testament canon. This is about 130, 140 A.D. John's only been dead for 40 years. The closing of the canon took place about 95 A.D. They were circulating all of the New Testament books, but nobody had really started collecting and saying, these are definitely canonical and these are not. They had certain, certain New Testament books they viewed as canonical. About 20 of them were indisputable. The others were were somewhat disputable because they didn't have... Uh, a certain element. For example, Hebrews didn't have a stated author, so that was somewhat questioned because they didn't know who wrote it. Uh, others were written to individuals, like Titus and Timothy, uh, Philemon. So those were circulated uh, weren't circulated as widely as the epistles that had been written to churches. And then Revelation has this horrific curse attached to it that if you mishandle or misinterpret it then you will be cursed by God in the second to last verse in in Revelation. So people weren't so sure about that being in the canon either. So those were question books. But it's interesting in the study of canonicity that no book outside of our 27 New Testament books was ever seriously considered a part of the canon, which we don't accept today. There were one or two that were, were, were investigated, but no... No book was ever thought to be in the canon that isn't in the canon. Well, Marcion wanted to cut the New Testament canon down to just a few books. And on the other side, in the second century, you had another fellow come along by the name of Montanus. And he had been a priest of a, of a Sibylle Addis cult in Asia Minor for a few years, and before he was saved. And he believed that he was the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. And he had a couple of women who were his assistants and and he began to uh, emphasize this cult of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was still teaching and communicating, giving new revelation to people, uh, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. Uh, they had a real emotional, subjective experience. Some people say that the, he was the first uh, Pentecostal or charismatic and it's not sure whether they, they spoke, they tried to speak in tongues or not, but it was definitely this kind of a more emotional, subjective. What he wanted to do was add to Scripture. So you always had this tug of war throughout history of those who want to take out the razor blade and say, this really isn't the word of God and this is, and others who want to add something that they think God missed. So the Samaritans took out their razor blade and they tried a little cut and paste theology. So Jesus accuses them by saying, You worship that which you don't know. You're just spiritually ignorant because you've basically truncated Scripture and cut most of it out, so you're spiritually ignorant. On the other hand, we Jews worship that which we know because we have the completed canon of the Old Testament and we know the truth. We worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. And then in verse 23 he says, But an hour is coming. That is, there soon will be a time. And now is. It's beginning now with the incarnation because this is the transition period. Dispensationally in the Old Testament you have two major ages. The era of the Gentiles and the era of the Jews. Subdivide these further according to different covenants. You have the age of human perfection from the creation to the fall. Then you have the age of... um, of conscience, from the fall to the flood. Then you have the age of human government, from the flood to, uh, to Abraham. I'm a little off here, we'll make the dividing line here. Then with the call of Abraham, you have the first era of the Jews, the age of the patriarchs, then the giving of the law under Moses, and you have the dispensation of the nation Israel. This all ends at the cross, And the incarnation is the beginning of a transition period. I don't see the period of the incarnation, the hypostatic union, as a distinct dispensation. And the reason I don't is because whenever you have a dispensational shift, there's always a covenant associated with it. For example, you have the uh, initial Edenic covenant, then the Adamic covenant, then the Noahic covenant, then the Abrahamic covenant then the Mosaic Law, and there's new revelation given which defines responsibilities for every single believer on earth. There's going to be a shift in how God is administering history, and this is the new revelation. But with Jesus, there's no shift given yet for all men. There's a distinction in his spiritual life and what he's teaching the disciples because he's preparing them and setting the precedent for the church age. But it's not, but life for the average Old Testament saint believer, living in Rome, the Jew living in Rome, the Jew living in Athens, the Jew living in Alexandria, northern Egypt, he doesn't even have a clue that Jesus has been born in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, that Jesus is ministering in Jerusalem, or that new revelation is being given, or that the Messiah has come. So he is still operating on the revelation that was given to Moses, the Mosaic Law, and he's still fully operational as an Old Testament saint under the Mosaic law. Jesus sets a precedent and that's what's taking place here. He, he shows that an hour is coming and now is. I'm establishing a new precedent. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. And this is the key phrase. In the Greek, it looks like this. You have the preposition in, en, en plus Two objects of that preposition which define it, they are in the dative, the instrumental dative. You have the instrumental dative of pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, and the instrumental dative of aletheia, A-L-E-T-H-E-I-A. Pneuma refers to spirit, and here it's the Holy Spirit, and aletheia refers to truth. Or Bible doctrine, remember Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer, Father, sanctify them by truth. How are we sanctified? By means of truth. Then he says, he defines truth very clearly. He says, thy word is truth. So, it's the, truth is defined as the word of God and by extrapolation, Bible doctrine, which are all of the principles extrapolated from the word of God, from the original languages and related in terms of principles and precepts to the Christian for living the spiritual life. So, what Jesus is saying here is that worship is by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of doctrine, by means of truth. In other words, there is an objective, I'm treating the second one first. This means that there are objective criteria for worship. Emphasis on objective criteria. Not subjective. We live in an era when people want to define worship subjectively. How do you know you worshipped? I worship because I feel like I worshipped. Wasn't it good to have been there? We define worship today. People want to define worship subjectively in terms of certain moods, in terms of certain emotions, in certain terms of sense, sense of um, certain pious Attitudes. Bottom line is that's all very superficial and has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Now let's back up a minute and look at the the other key word here, which is the word worship. Worship translates the Greek word, Greek verb for worship is proskuneo, p r o s k u n e o. Initially, it mean, meant to prostrate oneself as you would before a ruler. To show obeisance to that ruler. In the same way you would bow down and show obeisance and and, and your and obedience and loyalty to the king, you would do the same thing to God. And so it came to be a word that was re- related to the worship of the gods. It has to do with an attitude of subservience an attitude of of authority orientation and an attitude of also of adoration but this must be built upon certain knowledge about whom you are worshiping that is why Jesus says it must be done by means of doctrine by means of truth there's content underlying worship there are objective standards But the first thing he says is it's done by means of the Holy Spirit. It's in plus the dative, which is an instrumental dative. So, we worship by means of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you can engage in what appears to be worship, what looks like worship, what might feel like worship, and not be worship because it's done in the power and the energy of the flesh. Now, remember, this is so critical to understand. Put our diagram of the sin nature up here on the board. It looks like a diamond. At the bottom, we have our area of weakness. The area of weakness is the area which produces personal sins: sins of the tongue, sins of the uh, mental attitude, sins, and overt sins. This is the area where we're more susceptible to temptation. Once we, once the sin nature tempts the mind, the volition chooses to acquiesce that temptation and then we have sin the sin nature doesn't cause us to sin volition personal responsibility personal choice causes us to sin once we make that choice to sin we are out of fellowship and we are under the control of the sin nature and then the area of strength comes into play the area of strength is that area in our life and it differs from everybody where we are very resistant to sin we are very strong and we are going to produce a lot of good, what the Bible calls good dead works, Hebrews 6.1, and what we call human good because its source is in the energy of humanity and the energy of the flesh. And religion is a product of human good. A lot of religious activity is nothing more than human good and has nothing to do with reliance upon God. So you can be engaged in a lot of church activities You can be engaged in a lot of ritual, a lot of hymn singing, a lot of prayer, a lot of evangelism, and you can look like you're really worshiping God, and all it is is religion. It is the operation of your area of strength in in the production of human good and has nothing to do with true worship. So Jesus says that true worship, number one, it's directed to God the Father. I think that's important. Because there are certain segments that want to focus on either Jesus or the Holy Spirit in their worship. And yet, it is the Father who is to... Not that that we would not worship Jesus because He is our Lord and Savior or the Holy Spirit, but I keep asking the question, where is it in Scripture, outside of salvation, that our faith is to be directed towards the Holy Spirit? See, this is another idea that's dominating contemporary worship is that we need to put a lot of faith on the Holy, in the Holy Spirit. And yet You don't see that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, the Holy Spirit's whole goal is to bring glory to Christ in the Father. He is the unseen, behind-the-scenes agent that uh, is not directly worshipped. We are to worship the Father by means of God the Holy Spirit, not worshipping the Spirit, but by means of God the Holy Spirit and by means of doctrine. And then notice the next phrase. People who do this, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshippers. The Father is seeking those who are willing to worship him by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of doctrine. Not people who are just willing to have some sort of religious experience and get the the, uh, rosy glow and have an emotional high because they've engaged in ecstatics talking about people who are willing to learn doctrine under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit and then apply it in their life. And then just to make sure nobody misses the point, it's repeated. When the Holy Spirit repeats things, we really need to pay attention. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him by means of spirit and by means of truth, that is, Bible doctrine. So here it's very clear that worship is based on objective truth and has objective criteria. Now another thing that we must understand here is that there is a purpose to worship. Worship expresses adoration to God, but ultimately it culminates in personal obedience, and application to truth. When we talk about worship, often there's a distinction made between individual worship and corporate worship. But corporate worship doesn't work unless the individuals are filled by means of the Holy Spirit. We gather together as as a corporate body to worship the Lord. If we go back and trace the development of worship in the Old Testament, there, there is individual worship emphasized in books like Leviticus, and all of the regulations related to the sacrifices, that's individual worship. And then later on you see the development of a corporate worship around the temple and you see the singing of hymns. Where do you have that mandated in the Old Testament? You don't. But it's legitimate. I'm not saying because it's not mandated it's not legitimate. Of course it's legitimate. You have many hymns, throughout, but hymns are a response. They're never mandated. They are a response and it's part of the corporate worship of the body of believers, and that's what the Psalms are. The Psalms are the hymn book for the Old Testament saints. These are the hymns that were written and sung to praise God. So individual worship gives rise to corporate worship, not the other way around. And sometimes in in our society today and in churches today, we get this reversed. There's so much confusion about worship today. It's just just incredible. Now, we're told here that worship is based on objective doctrine, but the emphasis on the filling of the Holy Spirit also tells us that its end result is personal application. It's not just an exercise in academic intellectualism that we're going to come and we're going to study God's Word. Ultimately, if if, if worship is adoration and is related to authority, orientation, and submitting ourselves to God, that it implies learning everything that God has for us so that we can learn to think as God would have us to think, that our thinking would be dominated by the mind of Christ, which is the Word of God, and the result of that is renovated thinking and renovated character and renovated lives so that our lives reflect the character of Jesus Christ and thus God is glorified. And that's the end result of worship. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that the will of God is good, and acceptable, and perfect. That is, worship is defined in in Romans 12.1. Brethren, present yourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord, which is your reasonable spiritual service. That's another word that is used for worship. So part of personal worship is starting with the concept of learning and thinking doctrine so you can have the mind of Christ, which leads to a renovated life, renovated thinking, and renovated um, application. All of that is involved in worship. And what we do as a body of believers is we gather together with our primary focus on learning. That's where worship takes place. That's why we say here at Preston City Bible Church that learning the Word of God is the highest form of worship. Because we realize that if we are going to please God, we need to know what will please God. Therefore, we need to know who and what God is, who and what God, and what God expects of us, and what God has provided for us, and how to utilize all of those assets in the way that God has said to utilize them. So that's why we put such an emphasis on learning the Word of God. Now, after Jesus gives this discourse, the woman responds and says, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called, the, he is called Christ Christos. Looks like this in the Greek is the New Testament Greek, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Meshiach, which is the word for the anointed one or Messiah. So the parenthetical phrase, "he who is called Christos," is John's insertion to make sure that his Gentile readers would understand who, uh, the meaning of the word Messiah. I know the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. And then Jesus says, I who speak to you am He. Now this is going to generate quite a response in the woman, and we're going to come back and look at that next week. But right now I want to stop and focus on the doctrine of music and worship. The doctrine of music and worship. Now, I gave a little warning in the first hour that I was going to teach something in the second hour that's probably one of the most controversial, things I ever te- most controversial things I ever teach. In fact, I'm probably going to step on a few people's toes. Maybe not. We're a pretty conservative congregation, so I might not step on your toes. But, but uh, uh, if you're a little hypersensitive and don't have a lot of doctrine yet, I just might. So I'm going to give you a warning. That's the first point under the doctrine of music and worship is a threefold warning. I want you to pay attention to this. First of all, what I say about music is not a matter of personal taste. What I'm going to say about music is not a matter of personal taste. I've talked about this in a lot of groups, and I've caught a lot of flack for this, so I have to put these warnings up here because every time I put these warnings up here, people ignore them. Pay attention. What I say about music isn't a matter of personal taste. Some of you are going to take refuge in that dodge, simply because you don't like what I say and because it challenges your personal taste in music. But you're wrong. When it comes to evaluating the kind of music we use in the worship of God, it must never be a matter of personal taste. Never. The issue is not what kind of music makes me feel good. What kind of music do I like? When we decide what kind of music we use in the worship of God, it must be the product of clear, objective thinking. The second caveat. Though I am often accused of just asserting that this is my own personal taste, it's usually by people who don't have a clue what my personal taste is. Those of you who have come to know me over the past few months know that I have a rather eclectic, personal taste in music. I like just about anything except hard rock and heavy metal. You come over and catch me studying in the middle of the day, I'm going to be playing uh, uh, opera. I'll be playing Mozart. That'll be going on in the background just very lightly from the downstairs stereo. Uh, If I'm outside working or barbecuing, I might have on 50s rock. uh, I'm a typical product of my generation. I grew up on Elvis. The Temptations, The Beatles, Iron Butterfly, you know, Moody Blues, The Who. I listened to all that when I was growing up, and, and you know, I enjoy listening to it today. That's part of my background, part of my generation. And uh, when I went to college, I went to college in East Texas and was schooled on Hank Williams and Patsy Cline and and all the old uh, country, country artists, Chet Atkins and Loretta Lynn and sitting around the jukebox in the coffee shop listening to all the old country stuff. And I love to listen to, I don't like some of the newer country, but I like the old country. I also like the old western music. Now, that's where some people think I get really challenged a little bit. But I like Roy Rogers, the old cowboy song, Sons of the Pioneers. So I listen to just about anything, Cajun Zydeco to opera. Now, I like everything. This is not... What I'm saying here about music we have in worship isn't related to personal taste. In, in my past, in, in, in roles of Christian leadership, I've worked at Christian camps. I have spent hours sitting around the campfire with the guitar singing all the contemporary choruses that most people, sing, a lot of people sing in churches now. And back then, it was mostly confined to Christian camps. That's part of my critique. But... Uh, I've done all this. I've sung these songs. In fact, if it was a matter of personal taste, some of these songs we would be singing because I like them personally. But I do not think they belong as a preface to worship and the study of God's Word on Sunday morning. So it's not a matter of personal taste. It's a matter of objective, clear thought and understanding some things about music. And third, and this is always important, the issue is not always... Contemporary music versus traditional music. There are a few contemporary writers of Christian hymns that are good. The music they use is fine and the words they use are solid and reveal some profound theological thought and doctrinal content. That's rare today because most pastors aren't teaching it so the hymnists don't have it. On the other hand, there are some traditional hymns that are pretty inappropriate, fairly superficial, and the tunes—the tunes aren't very sophisticated at all. So the issue is not always contemporary versus. And every time I talk about it, somebody says, always wants to bring it down to that. Well, you just don't like the new stuff. Well, in some sense, that's true, but that's not the criterion. The criterion is not new versus old, contemporary versus traditional. The issue is twofold. This is the second point. We have to focus on two different subjects. Music on the one hand and lyrics on the other hand. Music and lyrics. Sub- subcategories of this is we also have to think of, of music in terms of that which is good for entertainment or singing along on the radio or listening to Christian radio, which, and I mean this seriously and not blasphemously, thank God we don't have here, because I find that most of the music that is played on contemporary Christian radio is silly, superficial, and, and, bad, and shows bad taste and no doctrinal content. And we just don't have to correct a lot of that uh, in our, uh, up here in, in uh, eastern New England. The other thing is, so you have entertainment versus corporate worship categories, and then you also have camp music, youth music, The music that's good and fun and might have uh, its correct use in a certain setting, but it doesn't belong as part of adult corporate worship on Sunday morning or Wednesday night as a prelude to the study of God's Word. So the two issues are music and lyrics. Subcategories are entertainment versus worship, camp versus church. Third point, let's look at some... Things about worship under three points. I mean, under lyrics. Start with lyrics. Three points about lyrics. Number one, the standard for lyrics should be the Psalms. That's the divine model that we have in Scripture is the Psalms. That's the lyrics of the songs that the, that the Jews sang in the Old Testament and the worship in the tabernacle. You can go back and you look at the Psalms and you look at how, de- how they develop their thoughts. Think about it just, just conceptually. For example, Psalm 6, O Lord, do not rebuke me in thine anger, nor chasten me in thy wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. These are written to be sung. The first, you you have in the Psalms, usually at the very beginning, a little subscript that's written there. That's part of the original text. That's not something the editor of the Bible added. That's part of the inspired Word of God. Psalm 6 begins, For the choir director with stringed instruments and upon an eight-stringed lyre. right That's sort of like a guitar. So right away we learn that it's not necessarily heretical to have a guitar in church. Okay? That's not traditional, so I just want to, those of you who are thinking this is going to be really traditional versus contemporary, right away I've sort of uh, uh, taken away a, a part of your argument. But notice how it proceeds. This is good poetry. This is exquisite poetry. These thoughts are not superficial. They are not shallow. He is Lord, he is Lord, he is Lord kind of thing. Or or one of my favorites, I don't know who the inane person was who wrote it, is Alleluia, sung seven times and then you start with the second verse and it's the same as the first. Alleluia, Alleluia. I'm not going to sing it for you. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. And that is, and what's going on there is that has more to do with the the approach or the methodology of a Hindu chanting a mantra to get him into a certain emotional state of mind, then it has to do with singing praise to God for who and what he is and what he has done in human history. You see, what happens in a psalm is there is a gradual development of thought based upon doctrinal perception and reflection upon what God has done in in a human life and in human history. There is a progression of thought it is not just simply the repetition of two or three phrases. Now, somebody may say, well, there are some psalms later on where there's a, there's a stanza and then, for the Lord God is, has loving kindness, and then there's a stanza and then there's a repetition. Well, that was a style that was sung by the choir. where It was antiphonal. They would sing one phrase and then there would be this chorus response. Well, that's not what we're talking about in terms of some of the contemporary songs that are written that are just this rep- repetitive mantra-like uh, concept. So the 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 Psalms demonstrate content, theological development, and deep thought, and above all, just good poetry, good writing. That's the part of that the standard should be the Psalms. Secondly, there's the development of a theme, with substantial theological content and reflection upon God and how He works in creation and individual lives. And then the third point is that the poetry is not silly, superficial, or repetitive. Now when we come to look at what is called today praise and worship, that's the catchphrase. In fact, what's happened historically over the last 20 years is that as worship has been subtly redefined as the singing portion of the service. So that what happens when the talking head comes up is not worship. And the guy who leads the singing is the worship leader and the other guy is the pastor. And churches are are out there hiring worship leaders, and it's not somebody who teaches doctrine. But it is somebody who's supposed to have the skill to pick the right kind of songs to put them together so that by the time you finish singing after 30 or 40 minutes, it's produced a certain mood, a certain emotional set of the mind so that people feel like they've worshipped. They have a pious mindset, and they have worshipped God. And then it's time to hear the teaching and, well, let's go home. I tried an experiment once in a church. I said, okay, you want to sing for 30 minutes? Let's do this. We'll sing two songs. I'll teach for an hour. And th- then we can sing for th- however long you want to. Oh, no, 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 no. When you get through teaching, we want to go home. <laughs> See, people inherently realize the purpose there, for is to hear the teaching, but they don't want it. They just want to come and have, a, have their own personal... They're, they're very self-oriented. And a lot of this, this contemporary praise and worship music really is an outgrowth of our therapeutic culture With our self-absorption, we want to feel good about ourselves, and we feel good about ourselves when we feel like somehow we've had this encounter with God. So this is called praise and worship, or contemporary choruses. They're characterized by a continuous repetition of short phrases, which usually are doctrinally innocuous. They might be correct, but they're shallow and they're superficial, and anybody who calls himself a Christian can say, oh yeah, I agree with that. That's why we're developing this monolithic view of, of worship today. You can go down here to the Congregational Church or to the Lutheran Church down here over in Ledyard, down by past where Bryce, Bryce and Ann live, or you can go to any number of these places and they'll see the sign out there, Saturday Night Praise and Worship Service. And they're all singing the same songs. Well, folks, if you have different doctrine and you have different beliefs, you shouldn't be singing the same songs. That's been historically true in in churches that understood doctrine. A hundred years ago, if you went to an Episcopal church, they followed the Book of Common Prayer of, I think it was 1778 or something like that, 1793. And And if you read the liturgy in there, it's wonderful. But they had a certain approach to worship that was a product of their doctrinal and theological understanding of Scripture. If you went down the street to a Presbyterian church, it was different. They sang different hymns. And they had a different liturgy. Why? Because that reflected their doctrinal stance and position. If you went down to the Baptist church, they would have a di- different view. But now we're living in this this era of ecumenism, and let's promote the unity, and it's unity at the expense of doctrine. And Scripture talks about unity of the faith. And the faith there is doctrine. It's a unity based upon doctrine, not not upon some some feel-good experience that we've all come together and sung these songs, and isn't it great? We feel so close to the Lord, and it's just wonderful praise, Jesus. It's just silly and superficial. But we live in a society that wants to be superficial about things. We don't want to get into depth. We don't want to think in depth. Because if we think very deeply about some things, we might disagree with somebody. And remember what's happening in our culture as a whole is what's called multiculturalism and it's accompaniment deconstructionism. now for those of you who don't know what multiculturalism is that's the that's the um, vogue term today for everything is okay no matter what culture you're from whether it's from a primitive culture in Africa or area and or whether you're from from a culture of, of Western Europe or or South America, they all have equal value and there's no criteria to judge culture as to who's good, what's good, and what's not, if one's better than the other. So they all have equal value. So all the religions have equal value and there's no overriding absolute by which you evaluate or judge anything. And that value system has seeped into the church. Observation. Who is the group that is most involved in fighting a culture war today? The Christian right, evangelicals, we realize that we're in a culture war, and what's happening on the on the other side is they want to tear down traditional values, and they want to tear down traditional views of uh, of government and history and all of these other things. So so many people on the Christian right or evangelical right or political right are out there fighting, tooth and nail, to maintain the traditional view of literature. They're fighting wars to maintain the classic canon. Of literature that something will Mass writers and may be fun to read but that's not part of the classic canon you want students reading in literature and studying literature in college I mean it's not literature like Herman Melville or or any other great writer that one might study go back to Homer or the classics from uh, ancient civilizations or whatever but the same group that's fighting and wanting to hold on to tradition out there in the the academic environment, when they come together on Sunday morning, what are they doing? They're throwing out tradition. They've bought into the same multicultural assumptions that the world has. And when they come to church on Sunday morning, they do firmly believe it is contemporary versus tradition. And tradition is stayed, old, and dead. And we need to get rid of it. And five days, six days a week, they're fighting for tradition. And on Sunday, they're fighting against tradition. Because they don't have a clue as to doctrine or have a divine viewpoint framework on anything. They're silly and they're superficial. When it comes to church, they just want to do what makes them feel good, just like the secularist does the rest of the week. Because they haven't challenged their basic presuppositions about life. So praise and worship reflects the cultural orientation of our day. They use these hy- these choruses like Hindu mantras to generate a certain mindset, a mood, and an emotion. Pay attention to this. Music can do one of two things. It can promote an environment wherein you can think and concentrate. And when you come here to class, you know you have to think and concentrate. You have to take notes. So you don't want to spend 40 minutes singing these uh, subjective little ditties that are swaying music and slow and put you in this real fuzzy sort of mindset, and then try to think after that. Whoa! that's why they want little sermonettes on Sunday mornings. They can't think after 30 minutes of singing those songs. So so music can do one of two things. Music can also prepare you to think and concentrate. And if you think about some of the older hymns written by Isaac Watts, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, many of the classics... They really You have to think about those words. And I challenge you, when we sing these songs, think about those words and realize that there's a lot of doctrinal thought that has gone into those songs and that underlies their thing. They have reflected deeply about how God interacted in their lives and in the lives of the church. In fact, music plays an interesting role. A few years ago, I think it was about a year and a half ago, there was an an issue of Newsweek that came out about the mind. And one of the points they made, if you're a parent and you want your child to to develop mathematical, scientific abilities later on in life, then as a baby, you need to be playing classical music in the background, especially Mozart. Music is, at its very core, mathematical. It deals with ratios. And what happens by playing that kind of music is that it, it sort of massages those parts of the brain to ge- help that, that infant generate... Uh, the the, the neuron pathways that are necessary later in life to do mathematical thinking. So music does different things, has different effects upon your thinking. So when we come together as a body of believers on a Sunday morning and the ultimate focus is to study and learn the Word of God, then what we do to preface that in terms of music should support and enhance cognitive activity and not support and enhance emotive activity. And praise and worship operates at a basic assumption level that worship is subjective, and therefore the purpose of singing is to create this emotive mindset. And then you wonder why these people don't, can't learn doctrine and can't concentrate and only get a 15-minute superficial message, because that's all they can handle. What they did for 30 minutes is at complete odds with learning, studying, and reasoning. Furthermore, as a result of all these cultural influences, we have lost the ability and the willingness in evangelical Christianity, the ability and the willingness to critique music and to distinguish between good music and bad music, good lyrics and bad lyrics, appropriate and inappropriate, doctrinally sound and doctrinally unsound. And those of us who do raise the red flag of criticism are in turn criticized by being too dogmatic and not showing brotherly love and a concern for Christian love and unity. So when it comes to lyrics, we have to focus on doctrinal content. Now, music is a, is a totally different arena and one that really gets steps on people's toes. First of all, the music that we use should be thematic, sophisticated, and it should reflect a style and structure that is consistent with the scriptural worldview. See, the scripture views all of creation as having a unified whole, that ultimately God controls history. It is not chaotic. And yet, as a result of the influences of existentialism and a number of other philosophical trends, all based in Darwinism, that ultimate reality is governed by pure chance, you get the the impact of that musically. Now, I'm really simplifying this, I could expand on this but we don't have time that by the 60s you see this coming to fruition so that most, secu- even secular historians, but church historians like Sidney Allstrom down at Yale would mark 1963 as the end of the post-Puritan era in America so that by 19, 19- everything since 1963 is really Um, we've cast adrift from our earlier Christian roots. We're truly now a purely secular society. Well, what also happens around 1963? You have the Beatles come in, you have a shift to a certain kind of music after that. You get the development of the drug culture, the anti-war movement, anti-establishment movement, and you have the creation in the 60s of a new style of music. Well, that new style of music is a reflection of certain ideological assumptions about reality. All through history, whether you're talking about art, one of the clearest examples I'll give is just on visual art. If you think about the early Middle Ages and um, you look at the icons that are used in the churches and they're very two-dimensional and they they present like you'll see an icon of, of the Virgin Mary. And it will be, uh, it's very idealistic, very flat featured, and it's painting the ideal woman, not any particular individual woman. And then by the time you come to the Renaissance, there's been a philosophical shift. See, Platonism do- and Neoplatonism dominated the early Middle Ages. And in Neoplatonism, what has more significance is, is the ideal realm and not the realm of nature or the realm of reality. But you have a shift to Aristotelian type of thought after that. That begins to give birth to the uh, the Renaissance, and so there's a a shift away from this upper-story idealism to reality, things as they are. So now, when you get into Renaissance paintings, and there's a painting of the Virgin Mary, it's a real-life individual. Usually, the mistress of the painter, but it's a real-life individual. And you can, you know, if you if you lived at that time and walked down the street, you would see that person. So things are painted as they are, and, and it's now three-dimensional. And so there is there is the shift. The same thing happens in music, and it happened in music then. There was a, as people thought differently about their world, they expressed their world differently in the arts, whether you're talking about literature, drama, music, or, or art. And this happens all through history. Art and music and drama reflect philosophical, ideological underpinning. And so there were major shifts took place in the sixties that impacted music. Now what happened in about nineteen sixty seven is you had a guy named Lonnie Frisbee who's stoned out of his mind in some in, 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 in Haight Asbury in San Francisco and somebody gave him a gospel tract and he decided he had had enough about getting high on acid and now he was gonna get high on Jesus. So he went back to his roommates and and got them converted. And those three guys started a Christian commune. And those guys, one of them went down to a place in Southern California in Costa Mesa where there was a little old country church like this. And they heard a preacher named Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel. And they got all excited. And they took all the all these hippies in their Christian commune down to Costa Mesa. And that was start the start of the Jesus movement. Jesus Freaks. Some of you remember those days back in the 60s and 70s. And they produced various different rock band, uh, Christian rock band. They, that's where contemporary Christian music started, was from those people in that church. I forget the name of the group right now, but one of their songs that I used to plug it in the radio back when I was, when I was young and dumb, uh, was Little Country Church on the Edge of Town. And it was a little song sung about Calvary Chapel. That's where this music came from. What they did—they didn't know up from down doctrinally. They were taking the same music they sang day in and day out in their drug culture, and now they were just applying Christian music to, it, Christian lyrics to it. But they didn't realize that the music that they were using reflected a worldview that was at odds with the lyrics they were singing. But see, most Christians don't think past the end of their nose about any of these things. You can't find anything written about this anywhere because we're not trained to think analytically anymore in the church we just say, oh, we'll just think oh this feels good oh I must be worshipping God isn't it wonderful and it's silliness and if we compare the words of most of these contemporary songs to the words of scripture we see how silly and superficial they are in fact one, one theologian made the comment he was a Presbyterian and he made a comment about the Episcopal liturgy and he said well at least they don't say anything silly and see what happens in so many churches because we believe we don't want formal worship where everything's written out. and We think that's somehow wrong. We want people to be to just speak, uh, speak off the cuff and, and, and say whatever is on their heart. Um, we want a certain amount of uh, 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 we don't, um, informality. That what happens is people get up and they don't think about what they're going to say, and it comes across as somewhat silly and superficial. And the same thing happens in music because the people who are generating these choruses over and over and over again. I mean, they're very popular and every week there's 10 new ones so they don't even make the hymnals. That's why the new thing in churches is an overhead projector. I pastored a church 10 years ago and when I first went there, I thought, man, it's great. They've got an overhead. The overhead wasn't there for teaching folks. The overhead was there so they could put the words for choruses because most of these choruses haven't been out long enough to be published in a book yet. So they're just throwing these choruses up there. Okay, in terms of music, the music that we use should be thematic, sophisticated, and reflect a style and structure consistent with the scriptural worldview. Influences we see on hymn music are both secular and religious. I've gone over the secular. The religious is that we come out of a historical strain known as pietism. Now, that's not a bad word, pietism. But it does reflect a tradition that goes back into the 16th and 17th centuries, that reflects a little more subjective influence and approach to the Christian life. How do you know you're spiritual? I feel like it. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it puts a little more of a subjective influence. And as the centuries went by, that subjectivism grew until it gave birth to the holiness movement in the 19th century and then the charismatic movement. And what happens is, just as in the philosophical realm, the center of reality shifts from an objective reality out there to an inner I mean, an objective reality out there to an inner subjective reality. The same happened in worship. Worship is no longer determined by an objective reality that's out there. By the late 19th century, worship is being understood more and more as what's happening inside me. It's subjective. It's how I feel. And songs are being written that reflect that approach to worship so that these songs can be used in order to generate this kind of an emotional Mindset and create these religious moods. So the the, even if the words are good, the music itself can come from a secular background that reflects a worldview that is a contradiction to the words that we're singing, or it can come from a religious background where the music is basically designed to manipulate the emotions of the congregation to get them into this subjective state of mind which they think is worship. Various observations about what's going on today before we close. Praise and worship always emphasizes something new and innovative. Anything that's new is good and if it's and innovative is good, tradition is inherently bad because somehow it didn't quite do the job. Well, what about world missions in the last 2 centuries? What about all of the great seminaries that were founded in the last uh, century like Dallas Theological Seminary and Trinity and all of these that were founded that taught the word of God and even older schools like like uh, uh, Princeton Theological Seminary that were founded and were the, the uh, uh, energy behind sending millions probably of men and women throughout the world carrying the gospel. Uh, that's rejected by this narrow mindset that what's new is better than the old. Secondly, Praise and worship is now used as a tool for evangelism. This is the tool for evangelism, folks. We we don't want the the unchurched guy, and the term is unchurched Harry. Unchurched Harry and unchurched Mary have been surveyed. and They don't like traditional songs because that's not what they listen to on the radio. So one reason they don't come to church is because we're not singing songs they're used to. So they don't want to come. So if we want them to come, we've got to sing songs that are, sound like the songs they sing so they'll feel comfortable. Unchurched Harry and Unchurched Mary don't like to sing either because they don't know the words. So they want entertainment. That's the other trend is you're going to get your worship team up here that's got a lead guitarist and somebody on a synthesizer and a drummer and a couple of women and it's more who are doing the lead singing, the soprano and the alto. And now what have you got? Entertainment as opposed to leading worship. God. Third observation all this praise and worship music reflects a very narrow range of musical and lyrical style that is really more appealing to the tastes of an adolescent than a mature, sophisticated adult. We're dumbing down the church because we're dumbing down the music and we're dumbing down the lyrics. And we're going for the lowest common denominator. And what's happened is we've taken what the kinds of songs that we sang at camp for high school and junior high kids back in the 60s and 70s, and we've taken that whole environment and we've brought that into Sunday morning. Fourth, it reflects the values of pop culture, not the timeless absolutes of doctrine. Fifth, praise and worship music is driven by the emotional mood they create, which is then equated to worship. Sixth, it's designed to attract the masses. But those who come to church for music don't necessarily and usually don't want doctrine and teaching. They want entertainment and they want to feel good. So you immediately create a conflict in the congregation. You have a bait and switch technique. We're going to get you here on the music and then we're going to switch and try to give you teaching. Well, they don't want teaching. They just want to feel good. And finally, praise and worship reflects the values of the 60th generation and not the values of the Word of God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the certainties of your Word and the absolutes of your Word and the clarity of your Word. And as Jesus said, we must worship you by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of doctrine. That our worship has objective criteria as given to us by the Word of God. That we are here to attribute honor and glory to you at the highest level, by learning how we are to think, how we are to live, by taking the mind of Christ and taking it into our souls so that we may think like Christ thinks. We may think your thoughts after you. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning that is, they are not sure of their eternal destiny, that they would take the opportunity right now to pray, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's all that's necessary to have eternal salvation. Faith alone in Christ alone. He paid it all. He died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to think about the things we've studied today, reflect on them, that even if they may not uh, be what we hold as our personal opinion about music and worship, that we might be challenged by these thoughts, to think about them and to apply the objectivity of your word to these things. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.